you may notice that our passage today starts a little abrupt. It starts with this kind of this question. It's kind of a statement from Peter, and that's because it comes after what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We just see Peter, and I'll get into that, don't panic. We see Peter just start with this, See, Lord, we have left our homes and we have followed you. And it's most likely that once again, Peter uh, is speaking on behalf of the group. He's kind of the, the spokesman. He says things that people are afraid to say. It's going on in their heads. He just blurts them out uh, and that kind of thing. And on this occasion, the disciples are, are looking for reassurance from Jesus that they have made the right choice, that they have made the right choice to follow Jesus. And, and has, will that be worth it? They have left everything to follow Jesus in response to his claims to be where eternal life is found, uh, where it's encountered, uh, to be the one who brings the kingdom of God, who restores us back into fellowship and friendship with God, who can forgive sins and, and, and restore all that sin has broken in humanity and between us and God. And we saw that way back in Luke 5.11. And for us, that was November the 1st, 2020. Yeah, it was that far back. That's how we're going through Luke. And Peter, James and John left everything to follow Jesus. But now, some two and a half years later, like literally, they have taken two and a half years to get to this point. And so have we. I just realized that as I was reading that. They are wondering, have they made the right decision? Why? Why? Man, why is Peter seeking assurance from Jesus in this moment? Well, because of what's just happened. Recent events and something that Jesus has just said has sent a bit of a, a shudder up the spines of faith of the disciples. They have just borne witness to Jesus kind of exposing that even a life of incredible moral conformity, a life of, of religious obedience, a life that has uh, all the, the privilege and, and prosperity in it, which every culture and every religious kind of system on earth has said up to that point that this is the evidence of acceptance by God. Like that cultural framework only shifted because of Jesus. But now, and because of moments like this, Jesus is actually saying um, that the discomfort, that this wealth and this blessing that you have actually can keep you from God, actually can become a greater uh, source of affection and identity than, than what God should be. A rich young ruler has asked, what must he do to inherit eternal life? He has led a life of great moral conformity, and he has a life that has the evidence of material blessings. But is there some grand gesture that he can do just to, just to make sure that he is over the line? Jesus, who understands us, who sees our hearts, could see that actually what's going on in the life of this rich ruler is that money and the wealth and the comfort and the status is actually holding him back from the kingdom of God. So he tells this ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor and then follow him. But the man refuses this because to him, he can't see the worth in it. He doesn't see that this exchange is worth it. He didn't see Jesus as being more than what he already had. He prized what he had more than what Jesus is offering. He understands Jesus' instruction, but he chooses to reject it. And then we see that Jesus is sad. There's grief in this moment for him. And he says that 
is that the more wealth and privilege you have, the harder it is to see your need of God's grace and your need for repentance because you think you're blessed to have your hearts and your affections reprioritized, to have the disordered loves and values reordered with God as highest affection in our hearts, with his values and, and, and his loves as the things that we now pursue and Jesus uses this, uses this hyperbole, uh, which is an obvious exaggeration, that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, a person with a lot of material blessings to enter into the kingdom of God. Because great is the gravity, great is the love of these things over the soul than, than, than to let go of that and, and trust the soul to the care and comfort of Jesus, of God. Now, this has left people thinking, well, if the very best of us, this rich ruler, can't be saved by being the very best of us, then who on earth can be saved? To which Jesus pours these calming but uh, enigmatic words. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Like he agrees that salvation is not something any person can earn or merit. But he reminds the disciples and those listening that salvation is not the task of you, not the task of people, but it's the provision of God, something that he does. God will always do the saving as God has always done the saving. That's been the history of his people. But it's left Peter and the disciples with a question. Are their reordered lives enough? Are their reordered priorities enough? Will their complete renouncing of, of, of pursuing a life of their own ambitions, of their own desires to follow Jesus, is it enough? Will it be worth it? And it's an honest question that's being pushed across the table here. And if we are honest, there will probably uh, be times when we have asked, is Jesus worth it? Is it really worth it to reorder your life around a total commitment to Jesus? Is it worth it to follow Jesus in his demand to use your wealth and your power and your privilege to serve the poor rather than exclusively just serve yourself? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus when, when people who don't seem to have the same uh, moral ethics, they get ahead in business, they get ahead in life? Is it really worth it to deny sexual attraction and desire to follow Jesus' description of it as faithfulness and fidelity between a husband and a wife? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus and have relational standards and boundaries that make you unpopular at school, at uni, in the workplace, in the sporting venues? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus if it means loss of family or loss for family? Is it really worth it to just to pack up your whole life as Andy and Kel did 15, 16 years ago, as, as Phil Barnum is doing, as Ray and Carmen are doing, and follow Jesus over some other career plan? Have you ever faced that question, is it worth it? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? I think this is the space that the disciples are finding themselves in about their own salvation and whether following Jesus, whether what they've left behind is worth it. Well, I actually like the way Mark records it in Mark 10, 28, because Mark says that, that Peter began to say to Jesus, 
So Peter has a lot more on his mind. He's got a lot more that he wants to say than just, see, we have left everything to follow you. He possibly has a whole resume, an inventory of what he and the others have, have left to follow Jesus. But Jesus kind of saves him from himself and cuts him off. Before Peter can go on any further, he says to them truly, which is kind of Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you, need to, you just need to shut up a minute, brother. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents of children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. We may have been expecting Jesus to correct Peter's approach because we're used to Jesus uh, hearing Jesus challenge people's approaches towards him. He kind of gets behind the question to the motives of the question. Like We're used to that rhythm from Jesus in Luke's gospel. But rather, Jesus gives this extraordinary and absolute promise. There is no one whom in giving up their old life and following Jesus who won't gain what is on offer in the kingdom of God. Like not one single person. Well, the first thing that we should notice is that Jesus assumes that people will leave stuff to follow him, that they will actually leave behind a former way of life uh, of security and meaning in preferential affection for Jesus. That's 101 of the Christian life. It's in bold print on the gospel. It is never a surprise. It is never hidden in a fine print somewhere. Turning to Jesus always means turning away from other things. That's what repentance is. It means turning away from other things, things that make and mark who you are and turning, into, turning to something else to make and mark who you are. And this has been on repeat as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and, and he's been talking more and more about the kingdom of God and the kind of people who are in it and the kind of people who are out of it. That those that are in it are the, are the kind of people who would die to themselves, uh, who would repent of sins, who would take up their cross in sacrificial love and service. It's a renouncing of the old selfish ambitions and of living in right relationship with God. This is the turning. This is the turning away from something and turning toward Jesus. Following Jesus is first and foremost about a renewal of, of your heart and your soul and, and the motivational core of who you are. It's about transformation, being transformed. It is fundamentally about changed loves. And secondly, we see here that Jesus is very aware that the most costly thing to leave behind with preferential affection for him and loyalty to him are actually relationships and places of relationships like homes. And in Mark's gospel, he adds lands like places of, of, of familiar origin, places of identity and security, relationship, familiarity. Jesus is not blind to the cost and he is not indifferent and emotionally cold, but sympathetic and reinsure and reinsure and reassuring is a word I was looking for. Hence the promise. For some people, following Jesus will literally mean that they are no longer welcome in their family or their community. For some people, following Jesus will mean that they, that they, they lose a job or can't apply for a job. My brother went through that. 
For some people, following Jesus will mean they cannot act on a romantic desire. For some people, following Jesus will mean that they never get married, that they never have a wife or a husband. For some people, it will mean that they they never have a home, but will live in places that they can never permanently settle, build assets, tuck away superannuation and the securities of life. For some people, it may mean distance and separated for loved ones. It may mean packing up your family and moving it from all the support structures that they have. And Jesus recognises that a call of following him intersects at some of our most deeply visceral held affections and desires and relationships. Yes, Peter, you have left behind a flourishing business and your father And I know that your wife is at home with the kids while you are on the road with me. But truly, listen carefully. This isn't actually just Jesus cutting Peter off. This is him about to supply Peter with confidence. It's an expression of absolute truthfulness, which sounds redundant because truthfulness is truthfulness, but followed by this statement of absolute certainty. There is no one who has left these fundamental relational comforts, who won't receive many times more or or marks as a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. So Jesus is not saying that the Christian life will be one of resigned, uh, dutiful, degrading dryness, where the more miserable you are, the more you must be living for Jesus, the more love you must have for Jesus, like we baptized you in uh, lemon juice or something or other. That life for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years is going to be lonely, hard, and completely impoverishing and isolating. But cheer up. You get eternity uh, to be heavenly counseled, where we wipe away every tear and heal every wound, and you'll never worry about these things again. Jesus does not invite people to a life of this debasement of dry duty. He calls you to a life of discipleship, which as Mark records, has persecutions in it, but it is a life of integrated new relationships a life in community with God and with his people not in some conceptualized future but right now as you're sitting in those chairs the hundredfold the many more that Jesus talks of here is not that you know horrendous garbage uh, that you get from the prosperity gospel that if you sow a dollar in faith you'll get a hundred dollars in return not that kind of rubbish the hundredfold the many times more is what you find as you participate in the activity of the kingdom of God here and now as Sam Elbury points out to the person who loses or is cut off from family will receive even more places of relationship people of relationship places and people of relationship homes open to them for refuge for meals for friendship when Jesus says if you've ever had to leave your house for me or sell your house for me which are two completely different things there will be buildings there will be homes that you can go into and feel like you belong 
There will be places, there will be lands that are in a sense yours, where you are welcome, where you can rest, where you can be at peace. To people who have had to not pursue romantic affection of their heart, that they would find even greater and more loving and authentic relationships within this place, within this people. Loneliness should never be the experience of a disciple, of someone who is living in the kingdom of God. Because you are the 100. You are the many times more. Now, there is no doubt that there is a spiritual dimension to this promise and a, and a future dimension to this promise. We, we, we do have this imperishable, irreversible, inseparable, eternal relationship with God that Jesus has imparted to us, that the Holy Spirit has sealed on us. Like that's without dispute. And that is something far beyond words. That is something of its own deep satisfaction and affection. And the Holy Spirit comforts our soul in that. That's what Paul says in Romans. But there is here this expectation that Jesus sees an active community in which people feel uh, not loss, but, but only gain. Jesus is promising a community in which people who have renounced something in obedience to Christ will find more, not less, as they participate in the kingdom of God and the community of, of people that are gathering in this kingdom. So when someone says, how can I give up that which I love most to follow Jesus? How can I know? Will it be worth it? What we should be able to say is, well, why don't you stick your head in the door at freeway and find out? And that's not to say that Jesus himself isn't enough. Of course he is. But it is to say that following Jesus brings you into more community, not less. More relationships of authentic love, not less. More homes, open to you more hearts open to you I preached up in parks as I said last weekend and their morning and their evening service and while I was there I was there from Thursday to Sunday I went into many homes uh, many people and I didn't know them from a cold can of ham but there was instant hospitality there was instant familiarity because we shared this common faith in Jesus, not to mention our, our common concern uh, for God's creation. And I, I loved it. It was incredible sitting across a table from someone I, I barely knew talking about shared grief, talking about shared aspirations uh, in work for the gospel and, and pastor in church and all this sort of stuff. And in some way, I had more in common with some of these people than, than some other people that I've known my whole life. Following Jesus will mean a certain amount of loss and persecution, but he is worth it. And this community should be an experience and an expression of that assurance. So that when you walk in here, no matter what loss you may have encountered throughout the week, no matter what persecution you might have encountered throughout the week, walking in here should reassure you that following Jesus is worth it. Like that is our job.
Jesus turns then the spotlight on himself. What is he going to leave behind? What is he willing to renounce? So far we've been looking at the things from the perspective of is Jesus worth it? And now Jesus says something that makes us sit up and listen. That compels us to ask a more fundamental question. Are we worth it? The question arises because the blessing, the grand promise that Jesus makes can only come about at the cost, at the price of his blood, at the cost, at the price of his life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and he will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, this is at least the fourth time that Jesus has prophesied, that Jesus has spoken about his suffering and his death. Uh, from chapter 9 there, he mentions it three, twice, three times in chapter 9, again in chapter 13, and now here in chapter 18. In fact, there's probably at least seven mentions and allusions to, to Jesus' suffering and death in the Gospel of Luke. In this prophecy, though, Jesus gives us new and explicit information about uh, what he will suffer for sinners, for people wondering whether or not they are worth it. For the first time, he says that he will be handed over to the Gentiles, giving us a picture that it is the entire human race, not merely one ethnic group that is complicit in the death of Jesus. That is complicit in his, like this description of public humiliation and shame of being flogged and spat on. We see that Jesus is driven toward Jerusalem and his death out of a self-understanding that he is the Son of Man. A description that he has used uh, of himself that describes both his human ancestry um, as one who identifies with humanity and also his divine and eternal existence. The Son of Man is the incarnation of the eternal God. To be the long-awaited Messiah, who has been given universal authority by the Most High to reign over his kingdom, but who exercises this authority and power not through might and power, but through humility and service and weakness. And the cross is where that is most clearly seen. Well, this self-understanding that Jesus has as the Son of Man that pushes him toward Jerusalem would have been gained through this combination of divine revelation from the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. And then Jesus' own study of Scripture. He spent a lot of time reading, forming the conviction and the self-understanding that Scripture, which is all about the Son of Man, who he self-identifies as, will come true. If he is prepared to give up uh, his right to his rights, to leave behind uh, worship in exchange for whips. As Jesus read or would have read the writings of people like David and Isaiah, he would have seen, saw that the Son of Man would, have, would be forsaken by God. This is Psalm 22. 
that he would be pierced through his hands and his feet, that he would be despised and rejected by men in Isaiah 53, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities of, of, of people, and finally poured out unto death. That's the picture that Jesus has in his mind of what the Son of Man faces. Jesus' addition of his resurrection on the third day reveals that Jesus also knew of the promise of his resurrection. That he knew that his death would be far more than just some grand gesture or some grand example of love and sacrifice. It would be the means, it would be effective, it would be the means through which forgiveness would be made available to people. It would be the it would be the means through the satisfying of the just demands against sin. It would be the turning away of wrath. It would be the door of opportunity that we spoke about of the new life for sinners through which the promise of many times more would be encountered. And the question is are they worth it? Are we worth it? That question must have been on Jesus' mind. Is it worth it to suffer and die and offer eternal life to sinners? To a race of people who would nail him to a cross? To a race of people who would mock this very act of love? Turn it into the fodder of, of ridicule and, economy, and comedy? Is it worth it to live a life of complete obedience to the law of God? To have every decision that you make and every action that you live out be done in preferential affection for God in order to exchange and offer that up for us, for you and me, for our lives where we have lived in indifference towards God, where we have had preferential affection for God's stuff over him. Are we worth it? As he faces the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's an easier way, Jesus, sweat and blood. Are we worth it for Jesus to be separated from the love of God and face his wrath? Are we worth it? And we must wonder from time to time, as we take an honest look at our lives, are we worth it? Why would Jesus exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness? Why would Jesus exchange his favor with God for the wrath of God? His humility for our pride, his death for our lives. Are we really that valuable? Are we really worth it? And with every step that Jesus takes towards Jerusalem, he is saying yes. He is saying yes. You are worth it. The writer of Hebrews sums up the overall position of Jesus' heart throughout his whole ministry. But as he walks towards Jerusalem, as he endures the cross, that this is the joy of his heart. It's not, it's not, there's no happiness in this. This is not a shallow Disneyland feeling. But joy, nothing stirred his heart more than the idea of being able to bring people back into relationship with the Father. For joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross that waits for Jesus in Jerusalem is because sin is so serious, God himself had to deal with it. You are more wicked than you ever would say out aloud. But the cross that awaits for Jesus 
also says that you are far more loved than you ever dared dream. That Jesus would give his life as a means through which he could provide new life of truly new relationships with God and humanity. Jesus is worth it because you are worth it. If I can be that kind of corny with that. But the disciples have no categories to take this in. Their best hope is that Jesus is speaking figuratively. But they will learn that there is nothing figurative about the cross. They will soon see that Jesus, who knows the very impulses of their hearts, would exchange every impulse of his for theirs so that they could know the same joy of fellowship that he has with God. So that they could experience a life of a hundredfold more of relational gain over any loss that they suffer for the gospel. So that they could know the joy too of loving Jesus more than the things of this world. And the question is, do you understand this? Do you know that Jesus is worth it? And do you know that he thinks that you are worth it? Like, has that conversation uh, penetrated your heart, transformed everything about how you see the world and understand life? We're going to finish this, this time now as we, as we contemplate uh, that question by coming to this table. This is a table of fellowship. This is a table for people who, who know what it is to, to be in that experience of the more, of the 100-fold, of the, of the kingdom of God, who know what it is to have uh, their hearts and souls transformed by the love of God to them in Christ, that he would die for them that he would give his life for them, that his body and his blood would be used to, to build a new covenant with God. So in your own time now, just quietly come forward, grab a little cup that represents its symbolism, represents the sacrifice of Jesus. Grab a little bit of bread, again, symbolism of his crushed body, of what he uh, endured for our sin and just sit and give thanks and then look around the room and see a bunch of other people doing exactly the same thing giving thanks for what Christ has done in their lives and realize that this is the community of people that God has given you to do life with that God has given you to support you and down in Karambara right now in incredible grief is a bunch of people supporting and loving and, and many times more than the loss that they suffer. And they sit around a table like this and remind themselves that that is not a fairy tale, that that is not a fantasy, that that is a reality, a historic reality bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's on our hearts this morning as we come to this table. Loving God, we thank you for this time, this moment. We see in Luke's gospel that when Jesus sits around this table and redefines it around realities that are found in him, that his death and his resurrection, that he asks us just to sit and remember, 
to call to mind what he has done in our lives, and not just as a historic event, but as a consistently present, transformative reality in our lives, that we are not just saved as a historic event, but that we are being saved, that you are, that you are constantly um, changing and transforming us into the kind of people that are fit for the kingdom of God. And that there is a promise that one day in the distant future, or the not so distant future, that that reality will be ours in its entirety. But until then, you have given us each other to nurture and to care for and to encourage along the way. And as we gather around your table this morning, we are grateful for the reality of who you are in our lives. And we are grateful for this community uh, that you have brought us into with deep gratitude, we, we just eat and, and drink and nourish our souls on what you have done for us. And we know that in life, there are many things that can be taken from us. Uh, and we will suffer certain persecutions and loss for following Jesus, but many times more do you give back to us. And we pray that that we would be a living reality of that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.